Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. The Quality of Mercy is a novel by William Dean Howells, an American writer who lived in the 19th century. The book was first published in 1892 and tells the story of a young woman named Isabel Lawrence who becomes embroiled in a scandal involving her wealthy fiancé, Eugene Dale. When the scandal breaks, Eugene disappears, leaving Isabel to face the consequences alone. She is ostracized by society and forced to confront her own beliefs about morality and justice. Meanwhile, Eugene struggles to come to terms with his actions and ultimately seeks redemption. Throughout the novel, Howells explores themes such as social class, morality, and the complexities of human relationships. He also provides a vivid portrayal of life in late 19th century America, including the social customs and expectations of the time. The Quality of Mercy was widely acclaimed upon its publication and remains a significant work in American literature. It is often cited as one of Howell's most important novels, and its themes and ideas continue to resonate with readers today. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Hi. Northwick's man met him at the station with the cutter. The train was a little late and Elbridge was a little early. After a few moments of formal waiting, he began to walk the clipped horses up and down the street. As they walked, they sent those quivers and thrills over their thin coats which horses can give at will. They moved their heads up and down, slowly and easily, and made their bells jangle noisily together. The bursts of sound evoked by their firm and nervous pace died back in showers and falling drops of music. All the time, Elbridge swore at them affectionately, with the unconscious profanity of the rustic Yankee whose lot has been much cast with horses. In the halts he made at each return to the station, he let his blasphemies bubble sociably from him in response to the friendly imprecations of the three or four other drivers who were waiting for the train, they had apparently no other parlance. The drivers of the hotel bus and of the local express wagon were particular friends. They gave each other to perdition at every other word. A growing boy who had come to meet Mr. Garish, the merchant with the family sleigh, made himself a fountain of meaningless maledictions. The public hackman who admired Elbridge almost as much as he respected Elbridge's horses, they were really Northwick's. But the professional convention was that they were Elbridge's clothed them with fond curses as with a garment. He was himself, more literally speaking, clothed in an old ulster, much frayed about the wrists and skirts, and polished across the middle of the back by rubbing against counters and window sills. 
He was bearded like a patriarch, and he wore a rusty fur cap pulled down over his ears, though it was not very cold. Its peak rested on the point of his nose, so that he had to throw his head far back to get Elbridge in the field of his vision. Elbridge had a high hat and was smoothly buttoned to his throat in a plain coachman's coat of black. Northwick had never cared to have him make a closer approach to a livery, and it is doubtful if Elbridge would have done it if he had asked or ordered it of him. He deferred to Northwick in a measure as the owner of his horses, but he did not defer to him in any other quality. Say, Elbridge, when you go in to give me that old hat oh you are in, asked the hackman in a shout that would have reached Elbridge if he had been half a mile off instead of half a rod. What do you want of another second-hand hat, you old fool, you, asked Elbridge in his turn. The hackman doubled himself down for joy and slapped his leg at the sound of a whistle to the eastward he pulled himself erect again and said, as if the fact were one point gained, well, there she blows, anyway. Then he went round the corner of the station to be in full readiness for any chance passenger the train might improbably bring him. No one alighted but Mr. Garish and Northwick. Mr. Garish found it most remarkable that he should have come all the way from Boston on the same train with Northwick and not known it but Northwick was less disposed to wonder at it. He passed rapidly beyond the following of Mr. Garish and mounted to the place Elbridge made for him in the cutter. While Elbridge was still tucking the robes about their legs, Northwick drove away from the station and through the village up to the rim of the highland that lies between Hatboro and South Hatboro. The bare line cut along the horizon where the sunset lingered in a light of liquid crimson, paling and passing into weaker violet tints with every moment, but still tenderly flushing the walls of the sky and holding longer the accent of its color where a keen star had here and there already pierced it and shone quivering through. The shortest days were past, but in the first week of February they had not lengthened sensibly, though to a finer perception there was the promise of release from the winter dark, if not from the winter cold. It was not far from six o'clock when Northwick mounted the southward rise of the street. It was still almost light enough to read, and the little slender black figure of a man that started up in the middle of the road, as if it had risen out of the ground, had an even vivid distinctness. He must have been lying in the snow. The horses crouched back with a sudden recoil, as if he had struck them back with his arm and plunged the runners of the cutter into the deeper snow beside the beaten track. He made a slight pause, long enough to give Northwick a contemptuous glance, and then continued along the road at a leisurely pace to the deep cut through the snow from the next house. Here he stood regarding such difficulty as Northwick had in quieting his horses and getting underway again. He said nothing, and Northwick did not speak. Elbridge growled, he's on one of his tears again, and the horses dashed forward with a shriek of all their bells. Northwick did not open his lips till he entered the avenue of firs that led from the highway to his house. They were still clogged with the snowfall, and their lowermost branches were buried in the drifts. What's the matter with the colt? He asked. I don't know as that fellow understands the colt's feet very well. 
I guess one of the shoes is set wrong, said Elbridge. Better look after it. Northwick left Elbridge the reins and got out of the cutter at the flight of granite steps which rose to the ground floor of his wooden palace. Broad levels of piazza stretched away from the entrance under a portico of that carpentry which so often passes with us for architecture. In spite of the effect of organic flimsiness in every wooden structure but a log cabin or a fisherman's cottage shingled to the ground, the house suggested a perfect functional comfort. There were double windows on all round the piazzas, a mellow glow from the incandescent electrics penetrated to the outer dusk from them when the door was opened to Northwick, a pleasant heat gushed out, together with the perfume of flowers and the odors of dinner. Dinner is just served, sir, said the inside man, disposing of Northwick's overcoat and hat on the hall table with respectful scruple. Northwick hesitated. He stood over the register and vaguely held his hands in the pleasant warmth indirectly radiated from the steam pipes below. The young ladies were just thinking you wouldn't be home till the next train, the man suggested, at the sound of voices from the dining room. They have someone with them? Northwick asked. Yes, sir. The rector, sir, Mr. Wade, sir. I'll come down by and by, Northwick said, turning to the stairs. Say I had a late lunch before I left town. Yes, sir, said the man. Northwick went upstairs, with footfalls hushed by the thickly padded thick carpet and turned into the sort of study that opened out of his bedroom. It had been his wife's parlor during the few years of her life in the house which he had built for her and which they had planned to spend their old age in together. It faced southward and looked out over the greenhouses and the gardens that stretched behind the house to the bulk of woods, shutting out the stage picturesqueness of the summer settlement of South Hapura. She had herself put the rocking chair in the sunny bay window and Northwick had not allowed it to be disturbed there since her death. In an alcove at one side, he had made a place for the safe where he kept his papers. His wife had intended to keep their silver in it, but she had been scared by the notion of having burglars so close to them in the night and had always left the silver in the safe in the dining room. She was all her life a timorous creature and after her marriage had seldom felt safe out of Northwick's presence. Her portrait by Hunt hanging over the mantelpiece suggested something of this, though the painter had made the most of her thin, middle-aged blonde good looks and had given her a substance of general character which was more expressive of his own free and bold style than of the facts in the case. She was really one of those hen-minded women who are so common in all walks of life and are made up of only one aim at a time and of manifold anxieties at all times. Her instinct for saving long survived the days of struggle in which she had joined it to Northwick's instinct for getting. She lived and died in the hope, if not the belief, that she had contributed to his prosperity by looking strictly after all manner of valueless odds and ends. But he had been passively happy with her since her death 
he had allowed her to return much into his thoughts, from which her troublesome solicitudes and her entire uselessness in important matters had obliged him to push her while she lived. He often had times when it seemed to him that he was thinking of nothing and then he found he had been thinking of her. At such times, with a pain, he realized that he missed her, but perhaps the wound was to habit rather than affection. He now sat down in his swivel chair and turned it from the writing desk which stood on the rug before the fireplace and looked up into the eyes of her effigy with a sense of her intangible presence in it and with a dumb longing to rest his soul against hers. She was the only one who could have seen him in his wish to have not been what he was. She would have denied it to his face if he had told her he was a thief and as he meant to make himself more and more a thief, her love would have eased the way by full acceptance of the theories that ran along with his intentions and covered them with pretenses of necessity. He thought how even his own mother could not have been so much comfort to him, she would have had the mercy, but she would not have had the folly. At the bottom of his heart, and under all his pretenses, Northwick knew that it was not mercy which would help him, but he wanted it, as we all want what is comfortable and bad for us at times. With the performance and purpose of a thief in his heart, he turned to the pictured face of his dead wife as his refuge from the face of all living. It could not look at him as if he were a thief. The words so filled his mind that it seemed always about to slip from his tongue. It was what the president of the board had called him when the fact of his fraudulent manipulation of the company's books was laid so distinctly before him that even the insane refusal, which the criminal instinctively makes of his crime in its presence, was impossible. The other directors sat blankly round and said nothing, not because they hated a scene, but because the ordinary course of life among us had not supplied them with the emotional materials for making one. The president, however, had jumped from his seat and advanced upon Northwick. What does all this mean, sir? I'll tell you what it means. It means that you're a thief, sir, the same as if you had picked my pocket or stolen my horse or taken my overcoat out of my hall. He shook his clenched fist in Northwick's face and seemed about to take him by the throat. Afterwards, he inclined more to mercy than the others. It was he who carried the vote which allowed Northwick three days grace to look into his affairs and lay before the directors the proof that he had ample means, as he maintained, to meet the shortage in the accounts. I wish you well out of it, for your family's sake, he said at parting, but all the same, sir, you are a thief. He put his hands ostentatiously in his pockets when some others meaninglessly shook hands with Northwick at parting as Northwick himself might have shaken hands with another in his place and he brushed by him out of the door without looking at him. He came suddenly back to say, if it were a question of you alone, I would cheerfully lose something more than you've robbed me of for the pleasure of seeing you handcuffed in this room and led to jail through the street by a constable. No honest man, no man who was not always a rogue at heart, could have done what you've done, juggled with the books for years, and bewitched the records so by your infernal craft that it was never suspected till now. 
You've given mind to your scoundrelly work, sir, all the mind you had, for if you hadn't been so anxious to steal successfully, you'd have given more mind to the use of your stealings. You may have some of them left, but it looks as if you'd made ducks and drakes of them, like any petty rascal in the hands of the employee's insurance company. Yes, sir, I believe you're of about the intellectual caliber of that sort of thief. I can't respect you even on your own ground, but I'm willing to give you the chance you ask for your daughter's sake. She's been in and out of my house with my girl like one of my own children, and I won't send her father to jail if I can help it. Understand, I haven't any sentiment for you, Northwick. You're the kind of rogue I'd like to see in a convict's jacket, learning to make shoe brushes. But you shall have your chance to go home and see if you can pay up somehow, and you shall not be shadowed while you're at it. You shall keep your outside to the world three days longer, you whited sepulchre, but if you want to know, I think the best thing that could happen to you on your way home would be a good railroad accident. The man's words and looks were burned into Northwick's memory, which now seemed to have the faculty of simultaneously reproducing them all. Northwick remembered his purple face, with its prominent eyes, and the swing of his large stomach, and just how it struck against the jam as he whirled a second time out of the door. The other directors, some of them, stood round buttoned up in their overcoats, with their hats on and a sort of stunned aspect, some held their hats in their hands and looked down into them with a decorous absence of expression as people do at a funeral. Then they left him alone in the treasurer's private room with its official luxury of thick turkey rugs, leathern armchairs, and nickel-plated cuspidors standing one on each side of the hearth where a fire of soft coal and a low-down grate burned with a subdued and respectful flicker. 2. If it had not been for the boisterous indignation of the president, Northwick might have come away from the meeting after the exposure of his defalcations with an unimpaired personal dignity. But as it was, he felt curiously shrunken and shattered till the prevailing habit of his mind enabled him to piece himself together again and resume his former size and shape. This happened very quickly. He had conceived of himself so long as a man employing funds in his charge and speculations sometimes successful and sometimes not, but at all times secured by his personal probity and reliability. He had in fact more than once restored all that he had taken, and he had come to trust himself in the course of these transactions as fully as he was trusted by the men who were ignorant of his irregularities. He was somehow flattered by the complete confidence they reposed in him, though he really felt it to be no more than his due, he had always merited and received the confidence of men associated with him in business, and he had come to regard the funds of the corporation as practically his own. In the early days of his connection with the company, it largely owed its prosperity to his wise and careful management. One might say that it was not until the last, when he got so badly caught by that drop in railroads that he had felt anything wrong in his convertible use of its money. It was an informality, he would not have denied that, but it was merely an informality. 
then his losses suddenly leap beyond his ability to make them good, then, for the first time, he began to practice that system in keeping the books which the furious president called juggling with them. Even this measure he considered a justifiable means of self-defense pending the difficulties which beset him and until he could make his losses good by other operations. From time to time he was more fortunate and whenever he dramatized himself in an explanation to the directors, as he often did, especially of late, he easily satisfied them as to the nature of his motives and the propriety of his behavior by calling their attention to these successful deals and to the probability, the entire probability, that he could be at any moment in a position to repay all he had borrowed of the company. He called it borrowing and in his long habit of making himself these loans and returning them, he had come to have a sort of vague feeling that the company was privy to them, that it was almost an understood thing. The president's violence was the first intimation to reach him in the heart of his artificial consciousness that his action was at all in the line of those foolish peculators whose discovery and flight to Canada was the commonplace of every morning's paper, such a commonplace that he had been sensible of an effort in the papers to vary the tiresome repetition of the same old fact by some novel grace of wit, or some fresh picturesqueness in putting it. In the presence of the directors, he had refused to admit it to himself, but after they adjourned and he was left alone, he realized the truth. He was like those fools, exactly like them in what they had done and in the way of doing it, he was like them in motive and principle. All of them had used others' money in speculation, expecting to replace it, and then had not been able to replace it, and then had skipped, as the newspapers said. Whether he should complete the parallel and skip, too, was a point which he had not yet acknowledged to himself that he had decided. He never had believed that it need come to that, but, for an instant, when the president said he could wish him nothing better on his way home than a good railroad accident, it flashed upon him that one of the three alternatives before him was to skip. He had the choice to kill himself which was supposed to be the gentlemanly way out of his difficulties and would leave his family unstained by his crime, that matter had sometimes been discussed in his presence and everyone had agreed that it was the only thing for a gentleman to do after he had pilfered people of money he could not pay back. There was something else that a man of other instincts and weaker fiber might do and that was to stand his trial for embezzlement and take his punishment. Or a man, if he was that kind of a man, could skip. The question with Morthwick was whether he was that kind of man, or whether, if he skipped, he would be that kind of man, whether the skipping would make him that kind of man. The question was a cruel one for the self-respect which he had so curiously kept intact. He had been respectable ever since he was born, if he was born with any instinct it was the instinct of respectability, the wish to be honored for what he seemed. It was all the stronger in him because his father had never had it, perhaps an hereditary trait found expression in him after passing over one generation, perhaps an antenatal influence formed him to that type. His mother was always striving to keep the man she had married worthy of her choice in the eyes of her neighbors, 
but he had never seconded her efforts. He had been educated a doctor, but never practiced medicine and carrying on the drug and book business of the village, he cared much more for the literary than the pharmaceutical side of it. He liked to have a circle of cronies about the wood stove in his store till midnight and discuss morals and religion with them. And one night, when denying the plenary inspiration of the scriptures, he went to the wrong jar for an ingredient of the prescription he was making up. The patient died of his mistake. The disgrace and the disaster broke his wife's heart, but he lived on to a vague and colorless old age, supported by his son in a total disoccupation. The elder Northwick used sometimes to speak of his son and his success in the world, not boastfully, but with a certain sarcasm for the source of his bounty as a boy who had always disappointed him by a narrowness of ambition. He called him Milt, and he said he supposed now Milt was the most self-satisfied man in Massachusetts. He implied that there were better things than material success. He did not say what they were, and he could have found very few people in that village to agree with him or to admit that the treasurer of the Ponquasset Mills had come in any way short of the destiny of a man whose father had started him in life with the name of John Milton. They called him Milt, too, among themselves, and perhaps here and there a bolder spirit might have called him so to his face if he had ever come back to the village. But he had not. He had, as they had all heard, that splendid summer place at Hatborough, where he spent his time when he was not at his house in Boston, and when they verified the fact of his immense prosperity by inquiry of some of the summer folks who knew him or knew about him, they were obscurely flattered by the fact. Just as many of us are proud of belonging to a nation in which we are enriched by the fellow citizenship of many manifold millionaires. They did not blame Northwick for never coming to see his father or for never having him home on a visit. They daily saw what old Northwick was and how little he was fitted for the society of a man whose respectability, even as it was reflected upon them, was so dazzling. Old Northwick had never done anything for Milt. He had never even got along with him. The fellow had left him and made his own way, and the old man had no right to talk. If Milt was ever of a mind to cut off his rations, the old man would soon see. 3. The local opinion scarcely did justice to old Northwick's imperfect discharge of a father's duties. His critics could not have realized how much some capacities, if not tastes, which Northwick had inherited, contributed to that very effect of respectability which they revered. The early range of books, the familiarity with the mere exterior of literature, restricted as it was, helped Northwick later to pass for a man of education, if not of reading, with men who were themselves less read than educated. The people whom his ability threw him within Boston were all Harvard men, and they could not well conceive of an acquaintance so gentlemanly and quiet as Northwick, who was not college-bred, too. By unmistakable signs, which we carry through life, they knew he was from the country, and they attributed him to a freshwater college. They said, you're a Dartmouth man, Northwick, I believe, or I think you're from Williams, and when Northwick said no, they forgot it, 
and thought that he was a Bowden man, the impression gradually fixed itself that he was from one or other of those colleges. It was believed in like manner, partly on account of his name, that he was from one of those old ministerial families that you find up in the hills, where the whole brood study Greek while they are sugaring off in the spring, and that his own mother had fitted him for college. There was, in fact, something clerical in Northwick's bearing, and it was felt by some that he had studied for the ministry, but had gone into business to help his family. The literary phase of the superstition concerning him was humored by the library which formed such a striking feature of his house in Boston as well as his house in Hatboro. At Hatboro it was really vast and was so charming and so luxurious that it gave the idea of a cultivated family. They preferred to live in it and rarely used the drawing room which was much smaller and was a gold and white sanctuary on the north side of the house only open when there was a large party of guests. For dancing. Most people came and went without seeing it, and it remained shut up, as much a conjecture as the memory of Northwick's wife. She was supposed to have been taken from him early, to save him and his children from the mortifying consequences of one of those romantic love affairs in which a conscientious man had sacrificed himself to a girl he was certain to outgrow. None of his world knew that his fortunes had been founded upon the dowry she brought him and upon the stay her belief in him had always been. She was a church member, as such women usually are, but Northwick was really her religion and as there is nothing that does so much to sanctify a deity as the blind devotion of its worshippers, Northwick was rendered at times worthy of her faith by the intensity of it. In his sort he returned her love he was not the kind of man whose affections are apt to wander, perhaps because they were few and easily kept together, perhaps because he was really principled against letting them go astray. He was not merely true in a passive way, but he was constant in the more positive fashion. When they began to get on in the world, and his business talent brought him into relations with people much above them socially. He yielded to her shrinking from the opportunities of social advancement that opened to them and held aloof with her. This kept him a country person in his experiences much longer than any have remained and tended to that sort of defensive secretiveness which grew more and more upon him and qualified his conduct in matters where there was no question of his knowledge of the polite world. It was not until after his wife's death and until his daughters began to grow up into the circles where his money and his business associations authorized them to move that he began to see a little of that world. Even then he left it chiefly to his children, for himself he continued quite simply loyal to his wife's memory and apparently never imagined such a thing as marrying again. He rose from the chair where he had sat looking up into her pictured face and went to open the safe near the window. But he stopped in stooping over to work the combination and glanced out across his shoulder into the night. The familiar beauty of the scene tempted him to the window for what, all at once, he felt might be his last look, though the next instant he was able to argue the feeling down and make his meditated act work into his schemes of early retrieval and honorable return. 
He must have been thinking there before the fire a long time, for now the moon had risen and shone upon the black bulk of firs to the southward and on the group of outbuildings. These were in a sort the mechanism that transacted the life of his house, ministering to all its necessities and pleasures. Under the conservatories, with their long stretches of glass, catching the moon's rays like levels of water, was the steam furnace that imparted their summer climate through heavy mains carried below the basement to every chamber of the mansion, a ragged plume of vapor escaped from the tall chimney above them and disheveled itself in diaphanous silver on the night breeze. Beyond the hothouses lay the cold gray breeze, and off to the left rose the stables, and a cozy nook of this low mass Northwick saw the lights of the coachman's family rooms. Beyond the stables were the cow barn and the dairy, with the farmer's cottage. It was a sort of joke with Northwick's business friends that you could buy butter of him sometimes at less than half it cost him. And the joke flattered Northwick's sense of baronial consequence with regard to his place. It was really a farm in extent, and it was mostly a grazing farm. His cow were in the herd books, and he raised horses, which he would sell now and then to a friend. They were so distinctly varied from the original stock as to form almost a breed of themselves. They numbered scores in his stalls and pastures. The whole group of the buildings was so great that it was like a sort of communal village. In the silent moonlight, Northwick looked at it as if it were an expansion or extension of himself, so personally did it seem to represent his tastes, and so historical was it of the ambitions of his whole life. He realized that it would be like literally tearing himself from it when he should leave it. That would be the real pain. His children could come to him, but not his home. But he reminded himself that he was going only for a time until he could rehabilitate himself and come back upon the terms he could easily make when once he was on his feet again. He thought how fortunate it was that in the meanwhile this property could not be alienated. How fortunate it was that he had originally deeded it to his wife in the days when he had the full right to do so, and she had willed it to their children by a perfect entail. The horses and the cow might go, and probably must go, and he winced to think of it, but the land and the house, all but the furniture and pictures, were the children's and could not be touched. The pictures were his, and would have to go with the horses and cattle, but ten or twelve thousand dollars would replace them, and he must add that sum to his other losses, and bear it as well as he could. After all, when everything was said and done, he was the chief loser. If he was a thief, as that man said, he could show that he had robbed himself of two dollars for every dollar that he had robbed anybody else of, if now he was going to add to his theft by carrying off the $43,000 of the companies which he found himself possessed of, it was certainly not solely in his own interest. It was to be the means of recovering all that had gone before it, and that the very men whom it would enable him to repay finally in full supposed it to have gone with. Northwick felt almost a glow of pride in clarifying this point to his reason. 
the additional theft presented itself almost in the light of a duty, it really was his duty to make reparation to those he had injured, if he had injured anyone, and it was his first duty to secure the means of doing it. Yet that money, which it might almost be said was left providentially in his hands, were simply restored now to the company, it would do comparatively no good at all, and would strip him of every hope of restoring the whole sum he had borrowed. He arrived at that word again, and reinforced by it, he stooped again to work the combination of his safe, and make sure of the money, which he now felt an insane necessity of laying his hands on, but he turned suddenly sick, with a sickness at the heart or at the stomach, and he lifted himself, and took a turn about the room. He perceived that in spite of the outward calm which it had surprised him to find in himself, he was laboring under some strong inward stress, and he must have relief from it if he was to carry this business through. He threw up the window and stood with his hand on the sash, quivering in the strong inrush of the freezing air. But it strengthened him, and when he put down the window after a few moments, his faintness passed altogether. Still, he thought he would not go through that business at once, there was time enough, he would see his girls and tell them that he was obliged to leave by an early train in the morning. He took off his shoes and put on his slippers and his house coat and went to the stair landing outside and listened to the voices in the library below. He could hear only women's voices and he inferred that the young man who had been dining with his daughters was gone. He went back into his bedroom and looked at the face of an unmasked thief in his glass. It was not to get that aspect of himself, though, that he looked, it was to see if he was pale or would signal to his children.